Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello again. After what feels like far too long a period, I know that the podcast has been absent and myself a bit too quiet of late. I did recently put a post out on Twitter and Facebook to explain this, but as not everyone will have seen it, I'll briefly read out a short section of it for you here. Signals to Danger started as an experiment in storytelling, me trying something to see if it would work and if anyone would listen, and in all fairness, over the first year of its life, it expanded, well, to something I could never have dreamed of. The podcast has always been something that I've done in my spare time, alongside a full-time job and a young family. Over the last year, various things also took place in my life, a new job, a wedding and a house move, just to name a few. My spare time dwindled, and if I'm honest, my stress levels from various things started to rise. I'm not sure I ever appreciated how much of an impact that that can have on your ability to have a hobby until the last few months. When it came to the times of day I'd normally have got my laptop out to write, I found myself finding it, well, difficult to muster the creativity and energy required to pull together quality episodes that you deserve. And to be honest with you, it's difficult to record if you don't have a script. I kept telling myself I'd pick it up next week, and that week became the next and the next. Now, I've managed to find myself moving into a bit of a better place in that respect, and I've also given myself a bit of a kick up the trailing end, because... You know what, and this is probably the most important thing, I really enjoy making these. I love the research and the production, and I've even come to terms with hearing my own voice back. So I am back, and I'm hoping you'll all still be willing to listen, and I'm really looking forward to pulling these new episodes together and pushing them out. Anyway, there is one last thing I want to say before I stop rambling and start working my way back through this first episode. Since I put that message out on social media, the response has been fantastic, and it's really warmed my heart. I was so nervous about putting it out there, I half expected no response, or frustration at the silence that I'd shown, but what I got was amazingly kind words of support and excitement that I was getting active again, so to all of you, thank you so much. Okay, now, gushing and explanations over, big breath, let's get started. The first thing to say about this episode is that it covers events from only two years ago, 
this is by far the most recent accident I've covered and emotionally speaking, might still be raw for people. So I don't really do conventional trigger warnings in front of episodes because it's a podcast about train crashes. We kind of know what we're getting ourselves into, but this is a trigger warning and please bear in mind as we move into the episode. Secondly, this is the first episode that's going to be coming to you in two parts, and that's not because I'm easing myself into this thing, it's because by the time I'd reached writing the halfway point of the episode, I already had something the length of a normal episode, and I don't think anyone wants to sit through a two-hour episode of this podcast. So here we are. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 1 of Signals to Danger, and this time round, we're paying a visit to Carmont. Over 70 killed and about 200 injured near Lewisham in the worst rail crash since Harrow and Wheelstone. Three people have died after a passenger train derailed near Stonehaven in Aberdeenshire this morning and caught fire. I feel the heat coming through the windows and all the windows I could see were just orange like, like the sun. Six die in a South London train crash. Some who survived that were killed when a third train hit the wreckage. This was, in the words of the coroner, a unique set of circumstances that have resulted in catastrophic consequences. I remember where I was when I found out. It's a line we've all said, and in relation to a range of events. How many people out there know where they were when news emerged of the death of Elvis or Michael Jackson? How about when they found out that Princess Diana had been in a car crash? For a certain generation, that might be the moon landing or the assassination of JFK. For my generation, September the 11th, 2001. These are called flashbulb memories. And they seem to relate more to negative events because, well, those are the ones that shock us as a population. On the 12th of August 2020, I had a flashbulb memory. I can tell you exactly where I was and what I was doing. I can tell you the exact weather. I was stood on a platform at Hull Paragon Interchange, sun beating down through the glass in the station roof. The world was in the grip of the relatively early days of the coronavirus pandemic, but I think at that point we all thought we were middle point approaching the end. Looking back on it, I think there was a bit of a it'll all be over by Christmas vibe. And well, we were eating out to help out and we hadn't yet started numbering our lockdowns. And I know hindsight is always twenty twenty, but we still thought that Matt Hancock was a stand up guy and we didn't even know that Boris owned a party hat. Me and my colleagues were at the station that day meeting a journalist from the local paper. We were discussing our new enhanced cleaning regime and talking about what we were doing to keep trains clean for key workers. We'd walked up platform four and some of my colleagues jumped on board a train to sit there and talk to the media. And then I felt my phone vibrate in my pocket. When I checked it, there was a breaking news notification, which concerned me. There had been a train crash in Aberdeenshire. Initial hopes I held that this would be a bump, a derailment over a low-speed section, or anything like that, were quashed very quickly when I opened the notification to see pictures of smoke billowing over the green fields of the Aberdeenshire countryside. The name Stonehaven started to feature more and more in conversation as the day went on. 
The next few hours were spent glued to my phone as the story started to unfold. The railway has almost as many unofficial communications networks as it does official ones, and long before the news started showing pictures of the train involved, well, WhatsApp messages were pinging between staff showing what we'd all feared, that this was a proper accident. Before long, those I was speaking to on the day gradually started to learn more and more details. It became apparent that a ScotRail train had been involved and that it had been one of the HST sets that they'd, well, only had in place for a relatively short time. Rumours and theories started to do the rounds and pictures from the scene popped up on people's phones. By early afternoon, I'd seen wreckage that I now know to have been of one Tango 08. And even though it was unverified at the time, Knowledge of the distinct livery that was on those trains and the fact that no similar incidents had happened led to those of us with a bit of knowledge to make some reasonable conclusions about what we were looking at. The day was, from that point onwards, kind of a distracted affair. I spent some time flicking between breaking news websites, the UK Rail Forum website and various group chats, picking up dribs and drabs of information. And I must state... Um, For various reasons, I also did some work as well. But this was big and this was happening. Slowly, it became clear that lives had been lost as part of the accident. And the seriousness became more and more apparent. The importance of what was going on was not lost on me. Nor was it lost on any of the people that I spoke to over the next few days. But this is only my recollection of a day in August. People all over the industry, and in fact the country, where we were spending our day coming to terms with the fact that once more, an accident on our railway had claimed lives in the midst of a terrible, unexpected accident. Scotland. It is a country that I love, from the vibrant and beautiful cityscapes of Edinburgh to the seemingly bottomless locks. It's a place I'll never get tired of visiting. And the options to get there are relatively numerous. I mean, I wouldn't suggest a flight from England. There's a bit of a carbon emissions guilt attached to that, but I've spent many a time driving up some of the most scenic motorways and air roads in the UK to visit various places north of the border. But there is another option which is more sustainable, but also which helps to make Scotland so accessible to visitors from the rest of the UK. Rail. Both the East and West Coast main lines can bring people from London to Edinburgh and Glasgow, picking up tourists, family, businessmen, well, many of the cities and towns along the route. Birmingham, Peterborough, York, Manchester. The beauty of Scotland is only a train ride away. Look, I promise I'm not producing a Visit Scotland advert. Paul Monty's North isn't about to fade in as I'm talking. I am going somewhere with this. You see, the railway can't just deliver you to Scotland. It can take you around the country as well. In fact, not only is Scotland a beautiful place, it's a big one too. 
just under 80,000 square kilometres, about two-thirds the size of England. But the Scottish population, however, is spread out a lot thinner around the country than in England. Towns and cities, from coast to coast, from the southern borders to the northernmost tip. Lots of long distances and beautiful, challenging terrain between them. Well, that makes rail a real contender. There are several of the UK's most scenic routes situated north of the border. There's the West Highland Line serving towns like Auburn and Malig. There's the Highland Main Line taking passengers through passes and over mountains through towns like Pitlochry and onto Inverness. And then there's the Edinburgh to Dundee, taking in marvels of engineering such as, well, the fourth rail bridge. But as ever, I'm not specifically going to talk about any of the stuff that I've just rambled on about, and I know it's been a while since I've done this, but I'm pretty sure you remember what I'm like. I'm going to talk about a different railway line, the Dundee to Aberdeen. Both Aberdeen and Dundee are cities located on the eastern coast of the country. In fact, they are the third and fourth largest respectively, after Edinburgh and Glasgow. Both are economic centres, but traditional industries have given way over time to newer ones. Aberdeen's now known as the offshore oil capital of Europe. Dundee is responsible for 10% of the UK's digital entertainment industry, which is a fact I didn't know and might surprise you as well. Connectivity between these great cities was always clearly of importance, and with the arrival of the railways, it was inevitable that railway companies would jump on the chance to have involvement in yet another lucrative industry, and thus, over time, the Dundee to Aberdeen line would be born. Like most lines at the time, however, it wasn't constructed by just the one entrepreneur. The first section to open was the line from Dundee to Arbroath in 1838, constructed by, unsurprisingly, the Dundee and Arbroath Railway. From 1849 to 1850, the Aberdeen Railway opened the line between Montrose and Aberdeen, and then the North British, Arbroath and Montrose Railway opened the line between Arbroath and Montrose in 1883. And it's been a while since I've said this, but after all that falafel, and following several restructurings of railway companies, we were eventually left with the line of today. The line weaves along the coast after it leaves Aberdeen to the Oats of South until it reaches the coastal town of Stonehaven. Following this, it heads inland for a time, cutting through some rolling terrain over a series of valleys, cuttings and bridges. And after this section, the line heads back into Montrose on the coast and more or less stays by the North Sea until Taymouth and the city of Dundee. Now that section of line between Stonehaven and Montrose, that's where we're going to be focusing this episode. It is this section, shortly after Stonehaven, among the winding portion of the route, that we find Carmont. It's a name we've all become familiar with, and it's the setting for today's story. While we've looked far back into history, well, nearly 200 years in fact, it's now time for us to fast forward to 2020 and the 12th of August. But before we tell the story of that dark day, let's talk first about the night before, the 11th. 
When we think back to 2020, one of the things we saw a lot of was weather. I've already talked about the sun that I was experiencing on the 12th, but there was a lot less favourable weather around during the summer of 2020. We saw storms, a lot of them, carrying friendly-sounding names like Dennis or Ellen. What station announcements will gently refer to as inclement weather abounded over the course of the year. Snow and wind battering the UK several times, and they brought with them one other thing. Rain. The 11th of August was one of those times. The Met Office had issued an Amber Alert, and, well, that's something we're all getting far too familiar with. Rain was coming, and a lot of it. Over the course of the 11th, bands of heavy localised rainfall made their way up Scotland. Southern Scotland, the Central Belt and the Grampians all took a battering. Carmont and the course between Aberdeen and Dundee got off lightly, however. Light rainfall was all that was seen in this part of the world. 0.5mm, in fact. But that started to change as the 11th turned into the 12th. During the night, rain had continued to fall in the Central Belt, again intense in local areas. But by 5am, this had started to move. The weather reached the coast at around 5.50 in the morning and then set in, heavy and constant, till around 9am. Not a pleasant time to be in the area, but shortly afterwards the sun burnt through and the day started to look a little more normal. Weather can really change the way that we do things, from well, what we wear to the plans we make and even the way we get around. Motorways, well they slow to a crawl as surface spray abounds, a 20 minute walk even... Well, that quickly turns into a taxi or a bus, and let's be fair, cycling loses its appeal. But even if the skies have opened, life needs to go on. Appointments to keep, jobs to get to, and responsibilities to meet, so travel we must. And to help us get where we need to be, well, the transport network does all it can to keep us on the move. And that is where 1 Tango 08 enters the picture. Booked to depart Aberdeen at 6.38 in the morning, Tango 08 was supposed to travel down the coast to Dundee and across the country to Glasgow's Queen Street Station, arriving into the second city around half past nine. A long journey on the best of days, but a crucial service for those travelling for work, leisure or business. The train was a new addition to the ScotRail fleet, part of a fleet of intercity express trains brought into service in 2018, Inter 7 City, as ScotRail named them, or they brought an increased comfort, extra seats and a better first-class experience for passengers. The trains consisted of Mark III carriages, four of them in this case, topped and tailed by Class 43 locomotives called the Power Cars. And you could be forgiven if you thought that this sounds awfully familiar, because it does. While the Inter-7 City services were new to ScotRail, they were already well known across the railway network under another name, the Intercity 125, or the HST. Brought in in the 70s by British Rail, HSTs have been a mainstay of high-speed intercity travel in the UK for five decades. And in fact, as I'm sure you may know, HST stands for high-speed train. So it's probably fair to say that it might be a little bit inaccurate to refer to the train set standing there in Aberdeen Station on the morning rain as a new train especially in an era when, well, the average age of railway vehicles in the UK was sinking to its lowest since the days of BR. Countless operators up and down the country are bringing in new fleets constantly, and that average age is just going down and down and down. 
but this is the option that ScotRail has gone for, for these services. Now, in all fairness to ScotRail, these trains had been through considerable work to get them in a good condition for new services. Mainline HSTs are generally run with eight or nine carriages, depending on operator and route, but the ScotRail sets were only four or five carriages long, and they'd done a load of work to get these new short sets into shape. These carriages had been through an extensive refurbishment process. Slam doors, for example, famous for the fact that you needed to pull down the drop light, lean out and turn the handle to get off the train. Well, they were out, replaced with electronic sliding doors. And the toilets, well, they no longer dumped what they dumped out onto the track bed. Gone were the signs warning us not to flush the toilet while we were in a station. Perhaps most important to the customer, though, the interior was fully overhauled as well. To Joe and Joanne Public, for whom a train is just a train, they probably did feel like a brand new train. and Oh, to be unburdened of our knowledge, eh? And so, those passengers who needed to travel on this most horrible of mornings took their place on the platform, boarded the train, and took their seats. Among them, 62-year-old Christopher Stockbury. Also joining the train at Aberdeen were the crew who would take it forward on the journey. 45-year-old Brett McCulloch, the driver, and 55-year-old Donald Dinney, conductor. The conditions on the day had already taken its toll on the service, and with weather-related issues that had sprung up south of Dundee, it was kind of expected the train was going to terminate there, a mere 60 miles south. But bang on time, McCulloch and Dinny carried out the necessary tasks to see their train depart on schedule. Sequence of bells and whistles, literally, which accumulated in McCulloch releasing the brakes, putting in the throttle, and driving his train out of the platforms at Aberdeen, and into the driving rain. Tango 08 made the first station call in near perfect time, despite the elements not playing the game. It stood in the platform for a minute or two at Stonehaven before setting out again on its journey. This four-carriage train, powered by the two power cars, each of which, by the way, was capable of providing two and a quarter thousand horsepower, probably a little bit oversized and overpowered for the task it had to take this morning. By virtue of the early time of service, ScotRail estimated that normally between 25 and 50 passengers would be spread out amongst its carriages. But today, there were only seven, and one of those was a conductor using the service as a passenger. This was in the middle of COVID. There were less and less people on board trains. We saw it all over the network. So seven passengers had the several hundred seats to pick from. 
Now, quite often, train crew diagrams will require them to travel in a non-working capacity on one train to connect with another, and we do call this travelling pass. Nicola White was the seventh passenger to join Tango 08 on her way to Dundee to work another train out of the station later that morning. At this point, none of the nine people on board the train had any idea what the rest of the morning would hold for them. On leaving Stonehaven, McCulloch brought his train up to line speed, starting to negotiate as it curved inland after the station. Despite the curving nature of the line in this area, speeds of 65 and 75 mile an hour were in place and the train could easily meet them. Before though, the train rounded a left-hand bend and crossed the bridge over Carron Water, a river in the valley below. On this occasion, the train crossed without incident, and without passengers probably even noticing. They kept travelling, and at about 7am they whistled past the Carmont signal box, the previous site of a small station which was predominantly used for goods. And it was about this point that the weather started to catch up with Tango 08, and problems that had been seen elsewhere on the network started to interfere more directly with trains in the area. At around 15 minutes before Tango 08 passed through the area, the first northbound service on the 12 did so, negotiating the section safely, passing over Karen Water and through Stonehaven, but north of Stonehaven the driver found an area of flooded line at Newton Hill, and he reported it to Network Rail. The line between Stonehaven and Aberdeen was now closed until it could be inspected, but this wasn't the only issue which had cropped up. As McCulloch et al. passed the box at Carmont, a, another train was stopped in the area, two Bravo 13. Bravo 13 was the second northbound service to pass through the area, but on the journey up to Carmont, the driver had seen something concerning on the upline. Now, up on this route means southbound towards Edinburgh, and the upline was that which was shortly to be occupied by Tango 08. What the driver of Bravo 13 had seen was a landslip. Around a mile south of the box, close to Irony's Bridge, the driver at Bravo 13 had seen debris and earth from the cutting wall washed out onto the track, headed towards Dundee. So he stopped at the signal box to report it to the signaller. Now what made this report all the more pressing was that while the signaller was stood at the steps receiving this information from the driver, Tango 08 passed by, heading in the direction. The signaller reacted instantly to avert disaster he ran back up into the box to warn McCulloch. He immediately placed an REC call using the GSMR. We're back to the land of abbreviations. An REC is a railway's emergency call, and GSMR is the Global System for Mobile Communications Railway. You've heard me talk about this before. That's the big red button, the one that you press when lives could be at risk. If you're driving a train and you receive an REC, you absolutely must bring your train to a stand. And that's what McCulloch did. Just that. 570 metres before the landslip, his train pulled up and stopped. Process and procedure had averted an accident. Exactly as they're supposed to do. 2 Bravo 13 continued its journey northbound, passing over the Karen Water Bridge safely and arriving into Stonehaven. Unfortunately, the flooding at Newton Hill meant that for now, that was as far as it was going. But this meant that in this area of line, there were two trains, one northbound and one southbound, both of which could go no further. 
A member of staff from Network Rail attended and found not only the landslip at Irony's Bridge, but also flooding on the downline. The line through here was closed. From the site of the landslip, the Network Rail member staff could clearly see Tango 08 stood on the line 500 metres away. A new question now arose. What do we do with the passengers? The next station down the line, Lawrence Kirk, was now inaccessible to those passengers, and it was really clear at this point they were never going to get to Dundee this morning, at least not by train. Now, the industry is keen to avoid stranding passengers on trains for various reasons, some of which we'll probably cover later on. So plans were made to prevent this from taking place. At 7.18, route control staff for Network Rail contacted the signaller at Carmont and asked him to start making preparations to allow Tango 08 to return to Stonehaven, so the passengers could be detrained and other arrangements made for them. There was only one real problem with this solution, though, but it did have a, a, an answer. Tango 08 was sat on the upline, and Stonehaven required travel on the down. We can run trains in the opposite direction to the line's design, but it should be avoided wherever it can be. Signals, signage and route knowledge, well that's all kind of tailored for right road running. Now we can do it in an emergency or an exceptional circumstance and it's called a train movement against normal direction. But we often would refer to it as a wrong direction move. And there is railway slang for this, but it's quite ominous sounding. We do occasionally as slang refer to this as running bang road. The safest way to reverse the direction of a train is to use points to switch it onto the correct line. And in locations where this is often done, crossovers are provided and normally these are operated as normal points would be using either switches, buttons or levers in the signal box or a signalling centre. That's what you'd find at stations where you have bi-directional platforms and trains in and out in both directions on every line. It's fairly routine, but it's not always the case. Sometimes these switches are provided in areas where they're only intended to be used in an out-of-course situation. Places like Carmont. So these emergency crossovers, they're built a little differently to the everyday ones, and they tend not to have a feature known as a facing point lock. We have in the past discussed the difference between facing and trailing points, but as a recap, if your train is being turned by the switchblades... In simple terms, if you're approaching from the pointy end, then it's facing points. The risk here is if the blades of the points aren't locked and they could move under the train and derail it. For this reason, it is forbidden for a train to pass over facing points without a lock. So how was Tango 08 supposed to cross back over to the down? Well, as with many other things on the railway, there is a process for that. Emergency points can be secured using clamps and scotches which hold those points in place safely and arrangements were made for it to take place. At 7.40 in the morning, Network Rail described a mo- dispatched sorry, a mom, a mobile operations manager, to the box at Carmont to undertake this task. But once again, the weather caused issues and the mom, who was based in Aberdeen, came up against flooded roads and other issues, finally arriving at the box at about 5 to 9 just in time for the rain to ease up. In fact, his process was so slow that another mom and a local operations manager or LOM also set off for the remote signal box in case they could get there faster. 
To be fair, they both arrived about half past nine. By the time the points were secure, Tango 08 had been stationary for over two hours, and no other trains had traversed the line in either direction between here and Stonehaven. Nobody had seen that in that time something substantial and deadly had taken place. At 9.20, McCulloch contacted the signaller at Carmont. He informed him that he'd changed ends, he was now in the northbound cab, and whenever he was able to, he was ready to start driving his train northbound back to Stonehaven. But as time would tell, one Tango 08 would never make it that far. for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place with linkedin you can hire professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com people today Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Nearly two and a half hours after one Tango 08 had initially passed the box at Carmont, the signaller picked up the radio handset again. A short distance down the track, McCulloch answered the call. He had permission to return to Stonehaven, so that all six of his passengers could alight the train that they'd now spent almost three hours on, only managing to travel a tiny fraction of the route that had been planned. For the last two hours the train had been stood, not able to travel in either direction. Throughout this time, the conductor, Donald Dinney, had been diligently attending to his few passengers, making his way through the train, speaking to them, giving what little updates he could. Being an attentive and professional member of staff. When they arrived at Stonehaven, only the leading door on the front passenger carriage would be able to be opened, so he made sure to let his charges know. Around the time the train set off back north, he made a point of walking through to the very front vestibule, in the right location for his next task. McCulloch moved off, originally travelling down on the Upper Bang Road movement. 
but this changed as he traversed the crossover close to the signal box at a careful five miles an hour. The sun was shining. The rain had stopped. They were finally on the move, and a bit of a stressful and difficult morning had finally started to change. At around 9.34am, one Tango 08 passed Carmont Box for the second time that morning. McCulloch opened up the power on the train and started to increase his speed up towards the line speed of this section, 75 miles an hour. From the box, the speed built up as the line first turned gently to the right and then the left. As it passed through a cutting, the train reached around 73 miles an hour, having really in no time rapidly climbed up to the line speed because of its light loading and short formation. At the end of a relatively straight section of line, the train began to follow a left-hand curve, the line ahead being unveiled from the cutting wall as it rounded the curve. As the bridge over Karen Water rotated into view, something else was exposed as well. A landslip. It covered the rails on the down line, one that hadn't been there when Tango 08 passed the first time, Owen Bravo 13 had travelled over the route a few hours earlier. In this remote section of line, a real danger had suddenly appeared in the path of McCulloch and his passengers. At the point the landslip became visible, it was 120 metres ahead of the train, 8 metres less than the length of the train itself. 120 metres at 73 miles an hour is a distance you cover in less than four seconds. Four seconds. It's not enough time to decide what to do, let alone to do it. And yet McCulloch's professionalism, reaction time and training meant that he managed to apply the train's emergency brakes about two seconds after the landslip was visible. Only a second before the train reached it. Not enough warning. Not enough time and not enough luck. As the leading bogey of the power car hit the debris, it derailed to the left. In any other location, this could have been a nasty but much more favourable situation. But not here. Not at this exact point of this exact line. The crash of 1 Tango 08 had begun. 73 miles an hour. Keep that in mind and try to imagine the incredibly small period of time in which what I'm about to describe took place. Just after the point of derailment, the rails started a gentle curve to the right, but the power car was now not directed by them, and continued more or less straight, gradually derailing further to the left towards the cess on that side. For about 60 metres... A few seconds at this speed, the power car travelled almost parallel to the line until the next factor of the location came into play. The bridge over Karen Water. At the end of this period of a few seconds, the leading end of the train violently collided with the edge of the bridge parapet. By this point, the centre line of the train was now around two metres left of where it should be. The heavy power car began completely demolishing the stone parapet along the bridge deviating further 
and further to the left, towards the edge of the bridge and the drop to the river below. The force of the impact started to cause problems for the vehicles behind the power car. The involvement of the parapet started to slow the vehicle quickly, causing immense loads at the point where Coach D, the second vehicle, was coupled to it. This coach had miraculously remained on the track, but the derailed power car now sat lower than it, so that enormous compressive force between them meant that the coach began to override the rear of the power car. The leading bogey of the coach was detached, and that carriage started to pull as well. At the same time, this overriding meant that the rear of the power car was crushed, but more disastrously, so was the leading vestibule of the leading coach exactly where Donald Dinney had gone in preparation for the arrival at Stonehaven. As the power car demolished the parapet an inch further left, an inevitable point was reached. The power car left the bridge and fell to the embankment floor below on the other side, still travelling at an estimated speed of 45 miles an hour. On impact, the cab broke away from the rest of the vehicle, detaching from the underframe mountings and breaking into several pieces. As the power car slid off to the left, the leading end of Coach D continued on the bridge, but the leading end dipped down into the cess on the left of the track. This in turn lifted up the rear end enough that the trailing bogey also became detached. The whole coach began to rotate counterclockwise, sliding along the tracks on the underframe equipment. In turn, the lifting of the rear of Coach D had an impact on the progress of Coach C directly behind it. At the same time as D was lifted from its trailing bogey, C was lifted from its leading one, removing the carriage's ability to be directed by the rails. Not only this, but as the leading coach rotated, it pushed the front of coach C to the right, into the opposite bridge parapet, as a terrifying sequence of jackknifing among the remaining vehicles began. The leading end of coach C impacted with the earth bank and trees on the opposite side of the line. This impact effectively slowed the leading end of the carriage rapidly, but there was still plenty of energy left to dissipate. Even at this point, the rearmost vehicles of the train were still travelling at around 38 miles an hour. Coach B, the next, violently collided with the rear of C. With the movement severely restricted on the leading end of Coach C, the whole coach began to rotate clockwise on the line, although this meant that the leading end of Coach B was pushed to the right, over the embankment that the power car had tumbled down moments ago. As Coach C continued its terrible pirouette, Coach B was pushed down the embankment by the force of the two remaining vehicles of the train, and as the carriage slid down the steep earth bank, the coupling to Coach A broke, and the trailing bogey detached from the vehicle. At this point, seconds into the collision, Coach D lay on its side almost perpendicular to the tracks slightly further along the line, and Coach C also lay across the tracks, mostly upright but still turning against the earth wall, and Coach B was coming to a stand slowly, relatively slowly, lying down the embankment from the tracks. But unfortunately this crash was not quite over. At this point, about 10 seconds after the collision with the landslip, the power car at the rear of the train and coach A, the last carriage, were more or less still in line and on the tracks and travelling northbound at around 23 miles an hour. 
This is where the leading coach, sorry, the leading end of coach A, collided with the side of coach C, penetrating the side of the carriage. It pushed coach C around further, meaning in the course of a few seconds the carriage had almost turned a full 180 degrees. Bogies, shed from some of the other coaches, lay in the path of coach A, and so the leading end was lifted up by the impact. At this point, coach A reached coach D, where it lay on its side, and began to override that coach, rotating it over onto its roof as it did. And at this time, the trailing end of coach C, now pointed in the wrong direction, was also lifted by shed bogies, and so it too ended up rolling up and onto the wreckage of coach D, tilting onto its side as it did so. This almost consecutive impact between coaches A and C into coach D dissipated the remaining kinetic energy in the accident. One Tango 08 had reached its final resting place. Coach D lay on its roof, severely damaged and partially crushed across the tracks. Mounting it was the leading end of Coach A, and a little further along the inverted remains of Coach C, which had finally come to a rest, upside down and on top of one of the carriage ends. Coach B lay on the embankment below, and the leading power car lay crumpled metres away. Almost immediately after the train stopped moving, the leading power car started to burn. Now I've just spent several minutes trying to describe this horrendous sequence of events to you. But on that day two years ago, that long length of time isn't what it took for all of that to happen. The REIB report estimates around 14 seconds. 14 short seconds for that complex chain of events to take place. 14 seconds for a train to go from 73 miles an hour to nothing. That brief period was all it took for this violent, brutal sequence to happen for a couple of hundred tons of train to become a pile of wreckage. And 14 seconds was all it took for three people to tragically lose their lives. Carmont took place 13 years, 5 months and 20 days after another accident, the one that had taken place at Greyrig in Cumbria. Greyrig was the last time that a passenger had been killed on a train crash in the UK. 84-year-old Margaret Masson from Scotland, but Glasgow in this case. 4,919 days since the life of a passenger on our rail network had been lost, 
but unfortunately that count ended on the 12th of August 2020. Along with the tragic deaths of driver Brett McCulloch and conductor Donald Dinney, passenger Christopher Stuckbury also lost his life in the accident in the rural Scottish landscape. And it is this rural, relatively remote location which made the next part of this story more challenging. As the train finally came to a rest and one of the power cars began to burn, how would the alarm be raised? Both driver and conductor were killed in the accident. And of the other seven people on board, pretty much everybody was injured, and three of them severely. Salvation came from two places, and the first of them was in the form of Nicola White, the passenger who was also a conductor working for ScotRail. She'd been travelling in coach A of the train, now lay partially atop another coach, but generally the least involved vehicle and the least damaged one. She, along with the other passengers, suddenly found herself in a scene of horror. But she acted quickly to protect other passengers. She made a 999 call, then got out of the train and started to walk back along the track towards the signal box at Carmont to raise the alarm and protect the line. She walked over a mile, with a sprained ankle, which she likely obtained as she climbed from the coach, reaching a lineside phone at 10.15 and making a call to the box. Now, ballast is difficult to walk along at the best of times, and this wasn't the best of times. Her injury, shock, and the distance involved would have made this a very long mile indeed, and she made the call at around about 40 minutes after the accident had occurred. Through one small, happy coincidence, the alarm was also raised via a second route, but this took place almost immediately after the accident happened. The bridge over Karen Water was also known as the very technical sounding Bridge 325. In August of 2020, a project was underway to protect the bridge from the issue of scouring. This is a term that we did discuss back when we talked about the 1987 collapse of a railway bridge in Glenrid, Wales. Now, the morning of the 12th didn't see a full works team on site, but a small group of workers had been left behind to protect the plant and the equipment down in the valley from rising water levels during the wet weather. Two members of the team were standing by the river when they heard loud rumbling noises coming from the bridge above. They ran as masonry started to fall from the bridge, followed by vehicles of the train. Now, luckily, nobody on the valley floor was injured as this crash took place. But the contractors immediately set about the task of trying to help with this horrific situation that they had suddenly had thrust upon them. At 9.37, the supervisor on site placed a 999 call to report the accident, and they provided additional initial assistance to the injured people. They actually used a small excavator that was on site to move their portable fuel tank away from the scene and to place a timber mat across the river to make a temporary bridge so people could access the site. Police Scotland placed a call into Network Rail's route controller to report the accident and they informed the Carmont signaller, who in turn informed the mom and the lom who were still at the signal box after they'd helped one Tango 08 traverse back onto the downline. So they were quickly dispatched to the scene, arriving around 9.52. The area of the accident was surrounded by small public roads and farmers' tracks, 
so coordinating the response of the emergency services was challenging, with the first police arriving at around 12 minutes past 10, and ambulances shortly after at 10.20. The remote location and the small roads caused some significant challenges for the fire brigade, but they arrived on site around about the same time and managed to get to work on the fires. And I do say fires plural, because around 90 minutes after the accident had actually taken place, a second fire broke out in carriage B. Contractors initially used their excavator to dump buckets of water onto it, but eventually the fire spread out of reach and the fire brigade had to take care of it, but not before one half of the carriage was substantially burnt out. Luckily, the three passengers who had been travelling in that carriage, one of whom was seriously injured, was evacuated from the carriage before the fire began. One by one, the injured were extricated from the wreckage and transported to hospital for treatment. At the same time as this rescue work was being undertaken, another mechanism was springing into action. The REIB, the Rail Accidents Investigation Branch. At ten past ten, Scott Rail had notified them of the crash. The branch immediately dispatched investigators by air and road, and they arrived on site in the early evening to commence their investigation. In addition, planning and preparation began to allow for the recovery of the train's wreckage. Because of the challenging location, it was going to be necessary for a lot of work to take place for that recovery to happen. An access road needed to be built to bring in heavy vehicles and a crane to do what needed to be lifted. So a whole foundation pad was eventually built to support the weight of the heavy crane down in the valley floor. Despite all this effort, the first vehicle wasn't lifted from site until the 7th of September, and then the last a week later on the 15th. All six vehicles were transported away to a secure inside location so that they could be fully examined away from the scene and away from the cameras. The line was eventually handed back to Network Rail on the 19th, and it was reopened on the 3rd of November. This was to be one of the most important REIB investigations of recent years, and the report would need to be one of the most comprehensive ever published. Investigations started on the day of the accident, but they continued until the following April. Stonehaven, or Carmont, as it would come to be known officially, was the first major railway accident in recent years. The media was interested, understandably, as were passengers up and down the network. We've seen pictures of derailed trains, low-speed front-end collisions and freight trains scattered to the side of the track more recently. But this was the first time in a long time where we'd seen passenger carriages piled on top of one another, scorched by fire and buckled from the forces that they'd experienced. It was also the first time that we'd seen those pictures accompanied by photos of those who didn't survive for over a decade. I won't say that it was more important than ever for the RAIB to ascertain the cause, because that's not how this works. They always work to the highest standards to unpick accidents. 
But on this occasion, there was immense political and public pressure to get to the bottom of the accident. Over the next 18 months following the disaster, the branch worked tirelessly, investigating the causes of the accident. They combed over the wreckage of the trains, the landslip, the terrain surrounding the site, and records of the actions that were undertaken by everybody involved on the day. The resulting report, issued on the 10th of March this year, 2022, was 298 pages long. It identifies eight causal factors, four issues that need consideration, and two further underlying factors. The report also yielded 20 recommendations to the industry to either prevent further accidents or to increase survivability if they do happen. Realistically speaking, it could take another hour to even start to go through this report and the investigation, and to do it properly probably needs it. So that's why, in a Signals to Danger first, this episode will be split into two halves. Join us next time as we start to delve into the RAIB report. We'll talk about how the railway manages extreme weather events. We'll discuss the importance of planning infrastructure projects correctly. We'll talk through the train involved in the accident. And, among other things, we're going to have a chat about infrastructure. Three lives were lost on a wet, tragic morning, amongst what should have been one of the most scenic areas of our railway. And what the report tells us is that just like so many of the accidents that we've covered, this accident was, frustratingly, completely preventable. But then, they often are, aren't they? for joining us as we make our season three return episode notes will be available soon on the somewhat still under construction new signals to danger website as i've always said before please do like share and review the podcast come interact with me on social media twitter facebook just search signals to danger or daniel fox rail and chat to the person you find there There is a patreon for this podcast but i'm not going to plug that right now until i'm back up and running properly and you can rely on me to do so. But for those of you our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing support. I really, really do appreciate it. Music from this episode has been At the End of Nothing by Silver Maple, The Unforgettable by Gavin Luke, Break Apart by Dream Cave, North of Hope by Gavin Luke, As Luck or Weeps and Mask of Bairn by Descant, and this week's closing credits is Seven Magnets by Luwax. That is it from me. And so until the next episode, travel safe.